Great. My name's Josh, and I get to teach from time to time on the teaching team. I also get to oversee the Next Gen ministry, but I get to open us up in this new book, Exodus. We here at Redemption Gateway teach exegetically a lot. We open up a book of the Bible, and we just walk through it until we're done with it, and I am excited. We've gone through, I was writing down all the last couple years what we've been in. We've been in Philippians. We walked through the book of Philippians. That was a great New Testament letter. We walked through Jonah. Old Testament story. We walked through Ephesians. A few years back, we walked through the book of Acts. We went through Psalms one summer. We looked at the book of Titus. One few years back, we looked at the book of Judges, which is an intense book in the Old Testament. And now, for the next few months, we get to open up Exodus and just camp out here. And here's one of the reasons I'm excited. Exodus is an epic narrative. Some of the other books we looked at, Ephesians, Philippians, Titus, they're letters. They're more personal sort of interaction with the people. Exodus is like an epic movie. My wife recently gave me one of the greatest gifts she could ever give me. She hates intense movies. It's not her jam at all. She wants to laugh and laugh and laugh. That's all she wants to do with media. But she took me to go see the recent Tarantino movie, which is not a lighthearted movie, nor is any movie ever made by Quentin Tarantino. And it was what you'd expect awesome. I don't recommend it's rated R. It's got some violence, to say the least. But Exodus... Feels like a Tarantino movie. Here's at the core why I love his movies. It's not the gore. It's not all the gruesome sort of... Tarantino is this story writer, and every movie has this thread of hope, this thread of redemption. He longs for the good guy to win. Unlike Clint Eastwood, who I like too, but his movies end like, everyone's depressed. There's no purpose to life. (laughs) Everyone's dead. And you just walk out like, oh my. Gosh, Tarantino, you leave like, that was intense, but the good guy won. Exodus is a story about God, the good guy winning. But here's the reality. It is raw. It's intense. And it's brutal in some cases. But here's what God has always done as we as a church has opened up a book of the Bible. He has met us. He has shown us more of who he is. And here's the other side of that coin. He has also shaped us. From the specific text that we open up each week as we enter a new book of the Bible. So that's what I want to do right now is just set the stage. I want to pray and ask God to show us who he is, but also to shape us as we open this book together over the next few months. So would you bow your heads and close your eyes? Father, you are real. You're the God of creation, the God of redemption, the God of restoration. You're the God who speaks God, you spoke through Moses to these people, and now you speak to us through Moses and these people. So God, I pray these months would not be wasted, but they would be used by you, used by your spirit to shape us more into your image as we come to get to know you more. God, make us more of who you want us to be through this time together. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Everyone said... Amen. So Exodus is a epic narrative, like I said, but it's also foundational to the Christian life. It was foundational to the life of a Jew, and now it's foundational to the life of a Christian. I've got this quote that kind of captures what I mean by this. This is a commentator on the book of Exodus. He says this, the Exodus is central to the scripture, not where it lands, but just in purpose, central to the gospel and central to the Christian life. Whatever book of the Bible you're reading, whatever Christian practices you're involved in, echoes of the Exodus are somewhere in there. Exodus is maybe the most important book in the Bible because almost all of the foundation of the Christian life flows from this. So that being said, I'm aware that some of us have been in church a long time, some of us are familiar with this, some of us could 
not find Exodus if we tried. I get that. So what I want to do is just start our time by doing a little background into Exodus, just get us kind of on-ramped into the book of Exodus. And then I want to ask four questions of the text, that chapter one. Who are the people of God? Why are they being oppressed? What was their oppression? And then for us today, what are the implications as we sit under this word? So that's where we're going today. It'll be simple. First off, I want to just dive into background. Here's what I want everyone in the room to know. If you're a skeptic, if you've been doing this for a long time, we believe that this is a true story. The preachers that get up are not teaching a fable. They're not teaching fictional events and characters. We believe this is a true story. We believe this really happened at a certain time. We even have an idea of the time because if you fast forward, there's a book, First Kings, talking about Solomon. It says Solomon did this 480 years after the people had the exodus. And Solomon was happening around 965, which makes the exodus happen around 1446 BC. So a long time ago, thousands of years ago, this event actually happened. This whole book is true. Here's the other thing we believe. These are real people. I was talking to my kids at dinner, asking them questions. Just one of the questions I asked was, what's your favorite story you've ever heard? My second son said, Lego Movie 2, <laughs> which is just a bad movie. Don't watch it. <laughs> Lego Movie 1 was awesome. They did not do well with the sequel. My third son, who's got turd big brothers, said, my favorite story is the story of Joseph. And if you're a Bible person, Joseph was a little brother, and he had a bunch of turd big brothers, <laughs> and he was the favorite of the dad, and the dad gave him special treatment and honor, and Jude's like, this is easy, dad. The story of Joseph is the greatest story ever told. <laughs> but here's reality. Joseph is a real story. He was a person. He was one of the sons of a person named Jacob, who later had his name changed to Israel, which is where we get Israel. And Jacob was the son of a guy named Isaac, and Isaac was the son of a guy named Abraham. And God spoke to these real men and their wives and promised kids and continued this lineage. It's a real story about real people in real places. And then it's also a story about a real problem. The people are in peril. Genesis ends, and now we open to Exodus, and these people have a real problem. And the thing we're going to unpack through all of our time in Exodus, here's the big idea if you come to the book of Exodus. Here's what it is. Yahweh is the God who is making himself known in a world where he's long been forgotten. So that's what God's doing in this book. He's making himself known in this book where he's been forgotten. The best illustration I can give for this, when me and my wife were early married, we lived in Texas, no kids. Here was our typical Saturday. Wake up about 9, 10 decide what breakfast we wanted, go gorge ourselves on a burrito, come back to the pool, have a few drinks, fall asleep by the pool, wake up, spend about an hour deciding where in Fort Worth we wanted to explore, repeat Saturday upon Saturday upon Saturday, until the hostility of children entered our lives. <laughs> and now 6 a.m., my kids are all up, ready to just get after it. So yesterday, Saturday, we wake up and me and my wife go, what are we going to do to exhaust them? My, your mom's out of town. Let's go over there and throw them in the pool for a couple hours. Check. Come back. All right. Let's put them down for a nap. Nope. They don't sleep. Okay. What else are we going to do? Let's get on a bike, teach our kindergarten how to ride without training wheels. We go in a cul-de-sac and just ride. Go, 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 go. 
go. We fall asleep and we've looked at each other for maybe half a second over the course of the entire Saturday. That's how me and my wife have to live today. What does that have to do with God? Genesis 1 and 2 is God walking on a Saturday in Fort Worth with his people with no hindrance to their relationship. It's great. It's peaceful. It's clear. There's no fog. Fast forward. Anything past Genesis 3, God has to make himself known in a world that is hostile. So what we see in Exodus is God on a Saturday in the Wadhouse making himself known in the brokenness and melee that we have created for him. He is now making himself known not only as the God of creation, which he did, but also the God of redemption. And that's what we're doing here is we're looking at the God of redemption as he makes himself known through this book, which takes us to this first chapter. In that context, what is this first chapter all about? Here's the big idea of this chapter. A world free from the knowledge of God only leads to oppression and bondage. So as we enter this story, God is making himself known in a world that's forgotten him. Hence, there is oppression and bondage. So God must make himself known within the circumstances that are there. That's where we're at. So chapter one is about oppression and bondage for the people of God as he makes himself known. So here's what we're going to do. We're just going to walk through and ask some questions. Here's the first question of the day is, who are the people of God? So if you have your Bibles, Exodus chapter 1, we're going to look at the first seven verses just to kind of get our bearings in this story. Exodus chapter 1 says this, These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. So it's a big family. Some of you come with cousins and grandparents. Picture a big family at this church that's kind of multi-generational. This is what we're dealing with. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died and all his brothers in that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. So this is a family, the family of Jacob and the family of Joseph. And there's about 70 of them in this foreign land at the beginning. And the Bible sometimes is very clear on how chronological it's being. And sometimes it skips over huge swaths of time. And that's kind of what's happened. This first seven verses covers hundreds of years. Because when they first came, Joseph, it was in 1850, Joseph came. 1805, Joseph dies. The exodus, when Moses takes him out, is 1446. So from the time they came to the time they left, there's 400 years. When they first came and settled, there's a 70-person clan. How big do they get by the end? If you fast forward, you don't want to go there. But exodus, as Moses has taken the people out after his fight with Pharaoh, it says there were 600,000 men with him and women and children. So by conservative estimation, there was 2.5 million Hebrew people leaving with Moses at the Exodus. A 70-person family grows to a 2.5 million person nation. That's the, roughly the size of Chicago. And you just ask, wow, how'd that happen? Because God promised to grow the Hebrew people. He told Abraham, I'm going to make your descendants as big as the sky. As many stars as you can see, that's how many people you have. Look at the sand, as much sand as you see. 
And then he comes to Jacob and he says, I'm going to make you a great nation, a nation of nations. And sure enough, God is true to his promise. Who are the people of God? I wrote this down because it, it resonated as I read this. The people of God are the people that God has promised to never forget. And that's what we're dealing with here. This people who has this promise from Yahweh in the midst of a land that is not their own. But they are also tied to the God who has promised to never, ever forget them. Leads us to our second question now. Why then is there oppression for the people of God? They're the people of God. They're the people of God's promises. They are the descendants of Abraham, the guy who got all the initial promises. Why is there oppression for these people? And here's what I want to do. I want to look at the text and look at a micro, just template for how oppression happens, and then zoom out a little and just ask, in general, why? But first, I want to look at the actual text. Why is there oppression here? So if you have your Bible still, look at verse 8 there. This is where we get into the, the rawness of this book. Now, there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. So how do we get to oppression and bondage? The first step is ignorance of God. There arose a king who did not know, it doesn't even say it did not know God, it says he did not know Joseph. Pharaoh's so far removed, he doesn't even know the people of God. It'd be like today if someone in your life said, I don't know a, I don't know a Christian. You, you keep using this term Christian. What is, what is a Christian? They're so far removed from God, they don't even have contact from a person who trusts in God. And that's what we're dealing with, a Pharaoh who does not know God, and the only thing that flows from ignorance of God is oppression, whether we're talking about outside empires or even with the people themselves. We went through Judges a couple years ago, which is an intense book. But the beginning sets the stage for why Judges are so intense. And Genesis, er, Judges 2 says this, all that generation were gathered to their fathers. The generation that came in passed away. And there arose another generation, the youth, children of those folks, who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And if you read Judges, it is the most gross, immoral book in the Bible. And it's not happening with Egypt and Pharaoh. It's happening with the people of God because they did not know God. So the first step to oppression is ignorance of God. Here's the second one, verse 9. He doesn't know God. What starts to fill his heart as he sees this other people? Verse 9. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel too many and too mighty for us. So now he looks out at this people, different ethnicity, different culture, and there's this fear inside of Pharaoh, the fear of the other, fear of the not Egyptian. There's an ignorance of God, and there's a fear of other, and he actually has power to do something with it. There's a fear of the other. Does that still play today? Absolutely. I lead high school ministry, and the idea of cliques at its core is young people mostly just afraid of the other. We as adults don't grow out of that. We all live out of these different fears. And our systems and structures in place gets this. 
My wife's been reading a lot of common sense media. We gave a tablet to one of our kids, so she's trying to stay on top of it. And she was reading a blog to me, which was really interesting in light of the mass shootings recently. Said, kind of, here's how you deal with it with this age group, this age group, with teenagers. Here's what you have to talk about it. And then you also have to address kind of media around big events and sensationalism and how media plays into fears and emotions. And you need to kind of let kids in on the behind the scenes of how media and clicks and how people suck you in with these big events. And all that is fear being fleshed out in a way that disregards trust in God. But here's what the Bible says. It's one of the most beautiful verses in the New Testament. Perfect love casts out fear. As a follower of Jesus, as a person of God, we live in the reality that there is this perfect love towards us from God, and it is in the process of casting out all fear. And yet Pharaoh lived with ignorance of God, so all he had was fear and power to combat that fear. Here's the third thing we see with Pharaoh. Next verse. Verse 10, come let us deal shrewdly with them lest they multiply and if, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. What did Pharaoh want? He just wanted to keep Egypt at the top of the food chain. He wanted self-preservation. He wanted self-exaltation. He wanted to be at the top. There's an ignorance of God. There's a fear of other people and there's a desire inside to stay at the top. To be the king, to be the one in charge. Now, this is the story of how oppression works every time. I just wrote down, here's the steps in summary. There will be an ignorance of God, either intentional or unintentional. There will be shrewd political moves to create a fear-based view of the other. And through it all, there's a growth and a deep-seated nationalism and desire for security at the expense of any other culture that is deemed a threat. That's Pharaoh's playbook. That's Hitler's playbook. That's every mini oppressor's playbook across time. That is why they're in trouble. Now, what you have to do from time to time is to step back and ask and sit in the, the darkness and the heaviness of the moment and say, yeah, but why? Another way to ask and get to the heart of what people in this room struggle with is, why did God not stop this? Slavery, genocide, killing of children. And here's what, if you're going to be faithful to scripture and stand or sit across from someone and give an honest answer, here's what you have to say. I don't know. You can, with integrity, trace back the reason for all this and kind of talk about the brokenness of the world. That's perfectly fine. Like, what's interesting with Israel is there's two big moments in their life where God rescues them. This is one, the book of Exodus, where they're in slavery and Moses brings them out. That's the first big event. The other one is pages later, it's the Babylonian captivity. And those are kind of the two big moments of redemption that God has for his people. And if you look at them side by side, they give you a good holistic picture of how this world works in its brokenness. Here's what happened in slavery. Israel, Joseph, his sons and his children, his descendants did nothing wrong and they get swallowed up in an oppressive, broken, sinful system. Nothing wrong. They are sinned against. And then Babylonian captivity, if you read it, God says over and over again, this is 100% your fault. You're not listening to me. You're abandoning your, your purpose in this world. You're not bringing justice where justice needs to be. You've forgotten me. 
I'm going to send you off into captivity. He also rescues them. But that's the world we live in. Why does God allow this? I don't know. But here's what all of us live in right now. We are sinners. And we sin against people. And we oppress people through our words, our actions. That's reality. But we're also sinned against. And we live in this broken world where if you try to connect all the dots, you just look foolish and you're not faithful to what God says. Why is Israel here? Because sin has entered the world. Paul summarizes it with this. With through one man, sin and death has entered the world, Adam. Adam sinned and now death reigns. Why? Because all have sinned and therefore all live in death. That's the theological background as to why we look at any atrocity and think, why? I don't know. But it all traces itself back to a broken world where we are sinners and we are sinning against all the time. Here's the next thing I want to... What was the actual oppression now for the people of God? As we look, what did Pharaoh implement? He implements these three programs. I would just want to fly through them real quick. Verse 11. He kind of ratchets it up each time as the first one fails. Verse 11, therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and in brick and all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. First thing he does, he implements slavery. Verse 15, but they keep multiplying because they're God's people. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of them was named Shiphrah and the other Puah, when you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the burstool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it's a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives in and said to them, why have you done this? And let the male children live. Midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people continued to multiply and grow strong. And because the midwives feared God, he actually gave them families. Plan two doesn't work out. So he ratches up. Verse 22 is where the chapter ends. Then Pharaoh commanded all of his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. These are actual people, actual events. What was the oppression that they're under? I see four types of oppression as we unpack this, just to help our minds kind of wrap around this text. Here's the first one, is there is a political oppression. I just want to read what I wrote here as I'm summarizing the text. The Israelites were an immigrant ethnic minority. They came to this country originally because of famine in their own land, and they came seeking asylum. Yet they had no rights. They were not citizens. The only thing that got them in trouble is the fact that their host country did not like how big they were getting. Does that still happen time to time? They came. There's, their homeland's not great. People are dying. They come. They have no rights. 
and politically, they are non-citizens. This is, just let this sit in this moment for a second. God does not use this language of sojourner, exile, foreigner, once, and then abandon. It's a theme that runs throughout scripture for the people of God. Even later in the book of Exodus, as Moses now gives laws, as they're, they're their own people with their own laws, he builds into their law system rules to protect foreigners from having to go through the same thing they went through. Exodus 22 says, you shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. And as you read the New Testament and apostles write letters, Peter says this, you were sojourners, you were exiles, you were foreigners, talking about spiritually. This idea of being in a land that is not our own is built into the ethos of what it means to be the people of God. The second thing we see is there's an economic oppression. They were exploited as slave labor. They did not own land or have any sort of economic standing in this foreign land. As a dad of kids that are starting to learn history in school, I'm trying to think about how to talk about all the stuff that's just hard. Slavery's near the top of that, because my oldest is asking about it. And I know the history, and I can go to, but I, I can't fathom what it's like to be a slave. Nor can probably any of us, most of us. I remember, I just sit there and think, what? What would it be like? Okay, what's, what's the worst job I've ever had? Even that's comical. My, the worst job I ever had was Little League Baseball umpire as a high school kid. And it was terrible because parents are terrible at Little League Baseball games. And I would get yelled at and cursed at, you blankety blank and blank blank, I'll kill your blankety blank blank, whoa. It was terrible, but I still walked away with a check for 30 bucks for being there for an hour and 30 minutes. That job was not that bad. And yet Israel, African-American slavery, other forms of slavery, people actually worked with no pay, no rights, no reprieve ever until death. What did it feel like? to be a Hebrew slave. To get in this text, we gotta sit in these things from time to time. Here's the next sort of oppression, it's social. Not only does Israel live as slaves, but they're second class citizens and the system they're in is trying to squeeze out their culture through the shrewd moves of trying to get rid of all males in their society. They're trying to eliminate the Jewish people one male at a time. My wife and I have Sons, and I remember being in the room when we found out we were having our first son. This huge German woman was our ultrasound tech with the deepest voice. And she's pointing at the screen. That is the elbow. And that is the knee. That is the foot. And that is the, and she said, the male genitalia. And I just burst into tears. All I've ever wanted was to be a dad and have a son. If you're a Hebrew slave and you know you're having a son or you have a son, that's a whole different set of tears because your culture is the enemy and you're trying to get squeezed out. And that's the reality that they were living in. Here's just a question for us to think through. What does it feel like 
to be an ethnic minority here. Here being whatever you want to be. This church, this state, this country. And here's just some good homework. Ask somebody and then zip it and just hear what it feels like to be in situations where you feel like your culture is the one getting pushed out of the environment you're in. And the fourth thing we see is a spiritual oppression. Israel is forced to serve the king of Egypt. Even the language here, it's interesting. If you look at verse 13 there, God has a good play on words throughout this book. Verse 13 says this, so they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Exodus 7.16 says, uh, Moses is talking to Pharaoh saying, let my people go. Yahweh wants you to let my people go so that they can serve him. Same words there. They are in a situation where their service, their slavery is to Pharaoh. And they're even building these storehouses that store goods for the gods of Egypt. And God is saying, I want you to let my people go so that they can serve, be slaves to me, the giver of life. That was the reality for a Hebrew slave. It's no different today. Jesus says it this way. You cannot serve two masters. You must choose, he says. Israel didn't get the choice, so God frees them graciously. But there is a reality to there is a spiritual oppression that they are under, and there's a spiritual oppression still today. That's the oppression they're in. So as we sit and enter this book of Exodus, what does it have to say to us? What, one word a lot of people use when talking about teaching the Bible is application. I don't like that so much because it puts the onus on me, the teacher, to come up with three points. You go do this now, X, Y, Z. And I think the spirit of God is at play in all this. A better word is how does this story implicate us? Meaning how is the spirit of God going to connect dots for us in this room based off what we just read and felt in this story? And I've, as I've been studying this, I've got a few, got a couple of challenging questions, and I've got an encouraging question to our time. But what are the implications for us today? Here's the first one. Have you been liberated from slavery and oppression? Nobody would say, right now, I'm a slave. But the Bible keeps that language and that thread and that imagery throughout. And he says, we're all slaves of sin. We're all in bondage to the sin we have freely chosen. Are you still in bondage? Like if you're figuring out the faith, testing out Christianity, figuring out church, coming back after a long time away, the answer for your next step with Jesus is not a knowledge thing that needs to be inserted into your brain. Potentially it's you surrendering your life and leaving the dominion of slavery to sin and having Jesus rescue us by his cross. Has that happened in your life? Chris Wright, a commentator on this book, says this. Yahweh is not merely intent on liberating slaves, but on reclaiming worshipers. The stakes are high in the spiritual realm, not just on the floor of political history. Jesus says it this way. If you know me, you'll know the truth, and the truth shall, shall set you free. And his people, it's interesting, he's talking to his disciples, and they say, we've never been a slave. And he says, anyone who practices sin, which is everyone in the room, is a slave to sin. 
My word must abide in you and it will set you free. Has that freedom happened in your life? The offer is here. Christ has died for this to be a possibility. He has come towards you by his spirit and maybe he's calling you right now to repent and to believe and leave the slavery of sin and enter life with Christ forever. That's my first implication. Second one is this. What is your general tendency with Exodus-like oppressions? Are you an over-spiritualizer or an under-spiritualizer? Because Exodus is the picture, the Old Testament picture of what the cross is. So some of us leap right to the cross and say, yeah, yeah, I see what he did there. But ultimately, what we all need is the cross, redemption from sin. And then you read past all those things we just looked at in the real life circumstances, and you kind of dismiss the real, on the ground, earthy experience of God's people in oppression. And you over-spiritualize. You wouldn't say, oh, I don't care about that, but the way you structure things is spiritual matters. Here's an easy way to say it. What matters most is getting people to heaven, keeping them out of hell. And you struggle with people in ministries that talk a lot about feeding poor, going overseas. Are you an over-spiritualizer? Maybe you're an under-spiritualizer. This was a big thing back in, and still is in Latin America, places where there's tons of oppression from the government still. And they read passages like this, and they say, this is the prototype of what we need. We need liberation. Because our lives are terrible. We live in constant famine because the government is hostile towards us. And slowly, what can tend to happen is the spiritual side, the fact what Chris Wright said, that there's really slaves to sin in this world at the core of all this, gets dismissed for fixing all the -the on-the-ground problems that are real. Here's all I'd say is, which one do you tend towards? You want to get people to heaven, keep them out of hell? Or you want to feed people and you forget about the cosmic salvation piece. You don't pick one over the other. Both are necessary. Here's what I'd say. Just whatever it is on your spectrum, lean into your weakness. If you're an over-spiritualizer, hang out with some people that are on the ground doing some work of ministry. Go to Juarez. Go to the poor neighborhoods in Phoenix. Work amongst the immigrants and the asylum seekers. If you're kind of a social justice warrior and you haven't shared the gospel in a minute, a day, a year, and the Jesus truth of heaven and hell and salvation has been kind of forgotten, hang out with some good old-fashioned truth people who want to tell people the truth about Jesus and salvation. But we all have a bend. Figure out what yours is and lean into your weakness. I want to end on an encouragement, though, because reading this, was super encouraging for this one reason. If the people of God are the people that God refuses to forget, how do we see that fleshed out in this story? And here's how I see it. Who does God know in this story? Another way to say, who does God highlight in chapter one? Here's how he describes Pharaoh. There arose a new king, over Egypt. What's his name? God doesn't care. What's his birthday? Irrelevant. There arose this king over Egypt. And as I'm preparing for this and Googling and looking up all these commentaries, Egypt, if you Google Egypt and pharaohs, you could spend your lifetime researching the power and the might of the dynasty of Egypt and all its pharaohs. And yet fast forward down to these midwives 
Then the king of Egypt, he still remains nameless, said to the Hebrew midwives, one of them was named Sifra and the other Pua. Who gets named? These two God-fearing women. And the Pharaoh remains nameless. And if you Google these two names, it's sparse to even get information. Like, what's the meaning of their name? Eh, Some say beauty, some say justice. But in God's economy, in God's story, the people that he highlights and pulls out of the text for us are Sifra and Pua. And the king of Egypt remains anonymous. That is phenomenal for the people of God to hear that. Here's why. This book is going to highlight lots of other people. This idea of women being highlighted is all over this book. So if you're a woman and you're feeling unseen and unheard, God sees and God hears and promises to never forget. Not only that, he knows you and your name and your story matters. People with disabilities who are easily forgotten in our fast-paced culture. He's going to take a guy with a speech problem and he's going to exalt him as the leading mouth of the Old Testament. And he knows his name. Elderly folks. I talk to more and more elderly folks and there's this theme of feeling like life has passed by and they've kind of been forgotten. And yet the catalyst of this entire book is going to be an 80-year-old man God's using, and he's faithful. That's good news. God knows us. We are the people he will not forget. Even in the midst of being his people, he knows us individually, and the story that he is seeing and the story that actually matters is like the story in chapter one. There arose this king from some place, and there was these two Hebrew women who feared God. Their names were Shifra and Pua. That's the God we get to serve. Let's pray. Father, thank you for a story that brings us into what it means to be your people, people that are in bondage because of sin and the sin of this world, and yet a God who sees us and a God who has made promises in past that he is continuing to fulfill. And you're not just a God over generic people making promises. You're the God of individuals. You know us in the room. You know our stories. You know where we need to be encouraged. You know where it's really hard to be faithful and fear you in a world that's forgotten you. And yet in your eyes and in your story, which is the only story that matters, we matter because you see us. So God, as we enter this book, shape us into your people. Let us know you more. Let us be known by you more and be shaped how you want to shape us. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.